This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for Wednesday, September 30th, 2020. Seldom is there a day during which we're not assaulted by a typhoon of raw data about COVID-19. Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter and author of Unreported Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdown, joins us to give us context to these numbers. A consortium of doctors have sent a letter to the province urging the government to resist the impulse to implement a second lockdown. And we get the real story on classrooms from a high school teacher standing at the front of the room, as well as his daughter who's sitting in the mix. All of this starts now. see a thousand cases a day as uh, we're getting into October. As a matter of fact, apt to double every 10 to 12 days. Again, so says uh, the modeling. And uh, Doug Ford, the premier, saying how bad the second wave is, is up to us. Uh, If we mind our P's and Q's, uh, we might tamp things down. Uh, So when it comes to this whole idea of potentially a lockdown certainly in some some hot spots toronto would be one such uh what do we need to know that's where our friend alex berenson comes in the former new york times reporter and author of unreported truths about covid19 and lockdown alex always a pleasure good afternoon john thanks for having me so you know we've got this modeling that now tells us uh we could be headed back into you know these uh high water marks from the days of the early pandemic but you tell me, what are the crucial metrics that we need to consider as we're into stage two or phase two right now, the second wave? I mean, there really is only one metric that matters um, in terms of whether or not you should even be considering a lockdown, and that is hospitalizations. Um, and and the reason for that is sort of is multifold. But the testing, the, the testing, unfortunately. Um, has been proven now to catch a lot of people who are not infectious and who are not sick. Um, uh, and the reason for that is we, we're using a test called PCR. Um, and what that does is it looks for very small amounts of virus in people, and the test amplifies that over and over again, literally up to a trillion times. Okay, and so it can catch it can catch people who are very sick, but it can also catch people who are not sick at all. Okay, who previously had the virus and have recovered, who um, are never going to be very sick with the virus. And because we're doing so much testing, especially in the United States, but also in Canada, we have case numbers that don't really um, don't really tell you anything about uh, how many people are really sick. In, in, in March and April, it was a different situation because there was much less testing. And so a thousand positive tests then is not the same as a thousand positive tests now. And you can clearly see that in what happened in the Sun Belt in, in the United States back in July and August, June, July and August, when positive tests reached levels that they had never reached in March and April. If the number, if the, if the, if the clinical severity had been anything close to what it was back in March and April, those hospitals would have had huge problems. Instead, they basically managed, and the death counts in the U.S. never got close to what they were in March and April. And there are other reasons for that, too. But the most important thing your listeners need to understand is the test count is almost a meaningless metric. You need to know what's happening in the hospitals. And and as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's no evidence of any kind of hospital overrun in Toronto or anywhere in Canada uh, from COVID at this point. And there, and there never has been, as far as I know. 
Right. I mean, they put out the warning that in the event that we get into uh, acute situations with hospitalizations going up, the ICU number is kind of fixed at uh, 350 in the ICU, which would make it untenable for other people to be admitted for surgeries and so on and so forth. So uh, they don't want to overwhelm. But right now, uh, I think we're well under that. Again, these are all projections and it's modeling, uh, to your point, doesn't always tell the full story, but we've got to keep our eye on that particular metric, as you say. You know, the other thing is the case studies. I'm kind of curious about this. You said the Sun Belt in the U.S. of A., uh, but I've heard you recently comparing, say, Sweden's uh, approach to things versus Spain. One uh, had no lockdown. The other went hardcore. Uh, Can you share that information? Sure. So um, so Sweden didn't lock down, uh, and, and Spain did. And if you look now, six months later, um, after those lockdowns began, and the Spanish lockdown was very severe. Okay, it was, it was, um, it was among the most severe in the world, um, and and Spain really trashed its economy um, as a result in the second quarter. So, so if you look six months later, Spain actually has more deaths than Sweden, um, and it's in the middle of a new wave of cases, whereas the epidemic in Sweden seems to have completely burned out. Now, look, maybe in six months now, six months from now. We'll be, t- we'll be telling another story. But right now, if you had to pick between being Spain or Sweden, you pick Sweden. Because one of the things that seems to happen, unfortunately, with a lockdown, and certainly happened in the spring, is if you lock down and you're New York City or you're Northern Italy or you're Spain, and you lock down too late after the epidemic has really spread widely, you wind up with the, both, with the worst of both worlds. So what you have is sort of uncontrolled spread and panic. And it gets into nursing homes, and a lot of people in nursing homes die. We know that we know where this is dangerous. It's dangerous to elderly, sick people. And if it gets into nursing homes, it can kill a lot of people very fast. Unfortunately, you know that's where the that's where the biggest danger by far is. So you lock down, you blow up your economy. You actually you actually worsen the panic in nursing homes. So in in places like Spain, but also actually New York City, um, uh, people were dying. In some, in some cases, because they literally weren't being fed, because the panic of the nurses and the panic of the nursing home aides was in ho- both in hospitals and in nursing homes was so severe that people weren't getting the most rudimentary care, and some of those people died. So you have this terrible, this terrible situation, and guess what? You actually don't get any closer to what's called herd immunity. Because then you lock down and healthy people are staying home. They're not getting sick. They're not infecting each other. They're not sort of getting through the, you know, the, the cold or the, or the mild flu conditions that might prevent them in the future from spreading it to other people. And so that seems to be what's happened in Spain right now. So Spain is the, Spain is the worst of all worlds. It had, it had a severe epidemic back in the spring. It had a very, very harsh lockdown that blew up its economy. And guess what? Now that they've now that they've you know opened up again, they are having another wave of cases, which isn't as severe as the first wave. Okay, even though there's more cases, you're again having a situation where there aren't as many deaths, but it's still a, it's still a real wave. And so what I'd say, lockdowns at best can only push this thing forward into the future. And you know, Canada's had a better experience, you'd say, than the United States. But the cost, even when you have a better experience as Canada did or New Zealand. All, you know, all you're really doing is pushing forward the pain that you're going to have unless unless, you know, one of two things, you either extend the lockdowns forever 
whenever there's some kind of spike, or you hope that there's some really, really effective vaccine that comes out in a year or two. And frankly, there's not a lot of evidence that the vaccine is going to be great. It might, you know, flu vaccines work moderately well. Um, and that's, I think, what most people think this is going to be like. This is not going to be like the measles vaccine, something that is incredibly effective. I mean, that, that's, that seems to be what the betting is right now anyway. So, so what I would say is, you know, from a public policy point of view, lockdowns are, have now been proven to be uh, kind of the worst of all worlds. And Sweden and, you know, and to some extent, the Sunbelt, because the Sunbelt didn't lock down this summer, but those states did not lock down. And they are through, it seems like they are through the worst of it. And they are on the other side of it, and they didn't trash their economies, and their hospitals didn't collapse, and people sort of moved on with life. And that's that to me. Now, other people may disagree. That to me seems like a good choice to make. Wow, uh, a tough one. Uh, I guess you know there's no perfect answer here. Alex Berenson's with us, former New York Times reporter, author of Unreported Truths about COVID nineteen and lockdown. So uh, the Sun Belt. In effect, uh, without a lockdown, I know DeSantis there in Florida, uh, that's the route he chose to take. He got a lot of blowback for that. But in Sweden, yeah. same thing. The principal health minister decided from the hop that this was going to be there. Has either of the two, I mean, Sweden have a herd immunity? That, I'm told, usually takes about 70 to 80% of the population to have been infected at some point, And then you've got the herd immunity. Where are they uh, concerning that? <laughs> So there's a very, very big argument about this. And I would say the truth is that nobody really knows what the number is. The herd, herd, the idea of herd immunity, by the way, is not that nobody ever gets sick again. It's that, the, it's that you won't have broad epidemics because enough people have already been infected that if people get sick, it sort of will burn itself out pretty quickly. It's not that, it's not that no one ever gets infected. Okay, anybody who hasn't been infected theoretically is at risk of being infected. But there's something else on top of that. The big argument about herd immunity is actually twofold. One is, are there people out there who are naturally at higher risk of getting infected? Maybe because they're very social. They go out a lot there. You know, they're on public transit a lot. They're in bars a lot. Those people, because they're higher risk, are going to tend to get infected first. So maybe, and, and, and maybe they're more social, so they're more likely to spread it. So once you get those people infected and out of the way, they... Uh, the, the epidemic is less likely to spread as widely. Okay, then there's another group of people who might be, again, very old, very susceptible to dying from this. They may be more likely to die first. So what you see at the beginning makes the epidemic look much faster and much worse than it actually is. That's A. B is, are there a lot of us out there who have some kind of natural immunity this basically because of cross infections with colds. Colds are also coronaviruses. And there's some evidence that a lot of us have T cells, which is a kind of immune cell that will partially recognize the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus. And that would give us possibly some immunity. Now, here's what I'll say. There's a big argument. Nobody really knows the answer to this. But the people who are saying we need to get to 70 or 80 percent infectivity before this dies out have to explain why it is that it died out in Sweden. And right now, the antibody tests don't show anything like 70 to 80 percent. Same thing in the Sun Belt. And we really don't know the answer to that. But but the people who are saying, you know what, if we just don't do anything and we let sort of this spread, a million people in the U.S. are going to die. You know, MSNBC said up to six million people might die. There's just no evidence of that based on what we've seen in Sweden and the Sun Belt. And to me, the real world should be where we're looking for the data. There's a lot of arguments about epidemiology, about modeling. 
But what we need to do is look at what the countries and the states that didn't lock down, what their experience has been. Interesting take, uh, as a matter of fact. So don't be enthralled to the modeling per se and uh, some of the numbers that were trundled out earlier today that uh, we're going to head for a thousand cases. I mean, the University of Toronto guys, they've been wrong about they had terrible predictions in the spring. And it's as if that never happened. You know, it's as if so I you know, I've written these these booklets about the lockdowns and, you know, and about the death counts. And let me tell you, I'm very, very careful. I do my best not to make mistakes. But if I make a tiny mistake, there are people out there who want to just tear me apart. On the, and, and meanwhile, these people making these just predictions that have been just so far off for months and months, it's, I don't understand why the media doesn't say to them, hey, why should we believe you this time when you were off by a factor of 20 in June or May? I mean, to me, that's a very, or April, to me, that's a very legitimate question to ask, and everyone in the media should ask it. We'll leave them with that challenge. Uh, I appreciate your time as always, Alex. Uh, great to talk and get... Uh... A different point of view, for sure, from uh, a lot of the mainstream. Stay well. Thanks, John. You got it. Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, author of Unreported Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdown. Mm. We have looked at different aspects, uh, whether we would be returning to stage two or not. Part of stage two and one, two, and three was closure of all schools. We're not planning to close any schools, so we're not emulating those stages. It's a different time. We're coming into a different process. Well, that's Dr. David Williams earlier today. Don't know if that's any assurance that uh, they have the matters well in hand, but uh, he heads the command table. Uh, All the others uh, seemingly not uh, really identifiable. There's no transparency as far as that's concerned, and that has raised some concerns. Although uh, when he's saying it, uh, a lockdown if necessary, but not necessarily a lockdown, we're all on tenderhooks wondering how uh, this particular government is going to jump on this as the cases we know are increasing. They're saying could double in 10 to 12 days. We'll see a high water mark by mid-October and so on and so forth. Against that backdrop, three days ago, uh, a group of rather august physicians, uh, 20 in total, sent a letter to the premier uh, imploring him to uh, take a broader look when it comes to these matters, considering the potential for a lockdown. One such co-signatory is Dr. Susan Richardson, medical microbiologist and infectious disease physician with the University of Toronto. And she's joined us here on the line this afternoon. Dr. Richardson, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. So what is the overarching message in this letter sent to the Premier? What's the point and purpose? Um, Our group would like to um, emphasize that we need to be very careful before we move into further restrictions and heightened lockdowns, that this is the time to do that. The data at the moment suggests that even though the numbers are increasing, uh, we need to look at those numbers more closely because the number of cases today is not, does not have the same significance as the same number of cases in the spring. Then we had more severe cases. We were diagnosing. We were testing fewer people. Uh, we were testing people at the more symptomatic end of the spectrum. And we were, and infections at that time were in, largely in 
older and elderly age group and also the complications of those infections. So what we're seeing now is a 350 or 400 percent increase in the number of tests we do per day in Ontario and an expansion of testing out to people who all during the summer, many of whom were asymptomatic and also to mildly symptomatic people or people who are at school and concerned or or have been targeted for testing. Therefore, we're not actually testing the same group of people we did in the spring. And a positive rate now is not the same as a positive rate in the spring. Furthermore, we're not paying attention to um, certain um, data points that we should. We should be looking at percent positivity, which is actually still quite low, one point, around 1.5% at the moment, when it was 7 to 8% to positive in the spring. So 1.5% of people who are probably, who are for sure more mildly infected is much less of a problem than it was in the spring. Complicate, we also know that there has been very little increase in admissions to hospital or intensive care units or deaths in Ontario. And this is because we know that at the present time, more than 86% of cases are in people less than 60, whereas in the spring, it was almost 60% greater than 60. So we're dealing with a whole different population. And we feel that when you look at the entire picture of whether it's good to move into greater lockdown or back to greater lockdown, it's important to be sure that we have the appropriate justification for that from the data because there are significant collateral effects from doing so. And to just mention a few, we know that routine patient care can, if that's not continued, can get compromised and cancer diagnoses decrease. We know that children at the could schools could be closed and children could be again deprived of education, parents of the ability to go to work, businesses of, of their viability, um, stress and drug use and depression and suicides and overdoses. All of these things are very significant collateral damage from increasing restrictions and they are not they are not minor. So we we are advising that a more measured approach and a targeted approach be taken to considering lockdowns that's based on specifically where outbreaks are occurring, what specific groups, and should we target those as opposed to a general moving back to um, stage two lockdown. That's a very fine, comprehensive answer, by the way. Uh, You've ticked off a lot of the boxes. Again, Dr. Susan Richardson, one of the co-signatories to this letter to the Premier. And so uh, really broadening the frame of reference here as to uh, what needs to be considered. And you say there's hard data that exists showing the significant significant negative health effects shutting down society has caused. You kind of alluded to that. Uh, Schools primarily would be of concern. We talked about it in our first hour, uh, that it has deleterious effects on the children their mental health and uh, well-being and so on and so forth so up till this point it seems like there's been no consideration of that uh is part of the message that this has been too narrow in its uh scope i said frame of reference when they only go with uh the number of cases that's the thing they bang on every day and uh, perhaps some of the consequences which you've addressed uh we don't have the same collateral damage as it were but the scope of this and maybe the people who are also being consulted, would you like to see the parameters of that study group or the command table broadened? Well, I think 
um, the first part of your question with respect to um, was with respect to how we handle the data. Sorry, I'm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hard data. Yeah. Well, the problem is that we first started out with the intention in the spring of flattening the curve of infections, and we did that successfully. Um, and that was to allow the healthcare system to accommodate people who got ill. We never came near to stressing uh, or or um, hampering our healthcare system from functioning. In fact, hospitals were uh, almost very lonely places, except for the staff, in, in many places during the spring. The um, we have the healthcare capacity to deal with the current uptick of infections because there are very few uh, serious consequences of that, and that, to our mind, should be the measure of whether or not we inflict further lockdown measures with their consequences. So we need to link the outcome, the bad outcomes, or the or the capacity of our healthcare system to the number of cases that occur, and and that's a very important metric. There actually is not a very large gap between patients who present to hospital and those who get sick and require ICU care and those who proceed on to die. So that we we don't really need to inflict lockdowns probably months before we expect that we might have increased severity of infections. So that that's an important consideration. The all of these things need to be brought to the attention of the public, brought to the attention of politicians, brought to the attention of public health, because we need to consider the, an approach of what I would consider and other people have espoused as total harm and minimization, not just the reduction of coronavirus infections, because most infections right now are very mild. They're, they're the sniffles or a cold for, in children or the same thing in um, adolescents and young adults. We don't need to prevent these infections. We also know how to protect ourselves and to protect our frail and elderly in long-term care and retirement homes much better than we did at the beginning. So we should not see the broad spread into vulnerable populations at this point. We should have fairly mild disease. We will have some more severe disease, but it should be totally manageable by our current system. All right, because the province articulated uh, three scenarios, low, medium, and high, uh, when it comes to ICU capacity. And uh, under current modeling, they say that uh, we'll probably see two to 300 people in ICUs. Uh, and it seems like 350 is a tipping point, which would make it untenable. We'd have to uh, reject uh, some people from certain surgeries and the like. Uh, so are you saying if we manage our affairs, that number is not going to be realized? How do you see it? Well, I, I am leery of models in terms of determining how we act. We know that many of the models at the beginning of the pandemic were faulty, in fact, by many factors, and that this resulted in some cases in an overimposition of uh, restrictions. These models should not be, at this point, we know enough that we don't have to rely on models that may well be flawed, as many previous models and even the early Ontario models were flawed. What we need to do is look at what has happened elsewhere. If we look at Western Europe and what has happened there in multiple countries, they have had resurgence of infection, as we have seen. They have also seen very little introduction or very little 
increase in severe infections and very little and and have been able to manage this in their healthcare systems quite adequate, adequately without with maybe the exception of Marseille in France. So I think we should have that as our guideline. We should be looking at what actually happens, what we know from this infection, and not using models that may not be true. I mean, we have one to two cases of admissions to ICUs in the GTA at this time. Why would we, there is no, why would we expect that that is suddenly going to um, become magnified to astronomic levels? It's extremely unlikely, given what we know about the virus, the people it's affecting at this current time. Mm. Interesting, and uh, it's almost heartening news when you put it in that way. But uh, let me ask you finally, if you believe that the premier and the people at the command table are going to take this letter under their advisement, will they actually... uh, Maybe is this something like, you know, uh, a manifesto that they ought to consider, put into their considerations as uh, they move forward with policy? Mm -hmm. I do hope that they consider it seriously. I think this is at the heart of a democratic uh, country like like ours to have this kind of debate. There are clearly people who are on the other side of the question within my field, within our field. But I think this is where the um, the crux of the matter is, that we have to look honestly and openly and interpret all the information we have and make the best possible decision. And that goes for our pol- politicians and our public health practitioners. They have to listen to all the points of view and opinions that are coming in, and especially from those who are affected by the um, regulations and policies they then enact. It's a, a great explanation and uh, a worthwhile read, this letter, for anybody uh, who's not familiar with what's contained therein. Dr. Susan Richardson, I really appreciate your time this afternoon and explanations. Good luck going forward. Thank you very much. You too. You- You got it, Dr. Richardson, medical microbiologist and infectious disease physician with the University of Toronto. Franco in Scarborough. Let's get to Franco next here on The Oakley Show. Good afternoon, Franco. How are you today? I'm all right. How about you? I'm okay. So um, I'm a high school teacher. And Mm -hmm. to give you the uh, Reader's Digest version here, after returning from March 13th, I was actually eager to get back to my classroom. Um, the two weeks, I didn't really know what to do or what I was going to be teaching. I'm actually a shop teacher. So I spent the time like really digging down and giving my classroom and my shop a good, good, thorough cleaning. Uh, other things that I did was uh, the kids come in now, and I have, I'm lucky enough to have a sink, so they wash their hands. And I pushed all the workspaces like completely, like the kids are so far away from each other that I was telling your screener that even if somebody had COVID, there's no way they could possibly pass it. And so what I'm doing is I'm controlling everything. So everything comes through me. I pass the materials to the students and the students are separated and it just seems to be working and everybody is super comfortable. Now, on the flip side of that, I have a daughter who was, you know, a little having some anxiety as the cases were going up and I've always given her the the option of, you know, do you want to do the virtual? Do you want to go in school? Like, in school, what do you want to do? And um, she is, you know, uh, it it took a little bit of talking to, but she's still so far, she's in school. And when the cases were going up, she had some anxiety about it. But, you know, John, we got to look at the data. And the data says that, you know, we got 12.5 million 
Ontarians and we look at the cases, the percentage of getting the virus are so low. My daughter's here. I don't know if she wants to say something. Hi. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Are you you're, you're in the the classroom itself, right? How many kids in your class? Um in my chemistry class there's six or seven actually. Mm. And then in my mentorship class there's eight. Wow. Uh it's almost like you're getting private <laughs> private tutorials here. Uh and so yeah. what grade are you in? Grade 12. Oh, I see. Well, this is something then that uh, it's manageable. You like it better in school rather than doing it at home online? Um, yeah. I mean, just because I am in grade 12, I kind of need the in, in-person in experience to be sure. like with the teacher and get the help that I need. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. <laughs> I just want to add that the, the afternoon where I'm teaching virtual, I actually prefer it because I have myself on on the screen and the, and I actually have two computers set up with a camera so I have a camera on my face and I actually mm-hmm. have a camera on my desk so where before the students would be you know so far or maybe can't see it's perfect because they can see everything that I'm doing and on top of it I have the chat going so students students that are afraid of putting their hand up they can just do a private message and I can answer all their questions but wait a minute how do you teach shop online it's sort of a tactile thing isn't it yeah okay so the theory component i do that when the students are at home and so when they come in for their four-hour work period it's just straight shop time what kind of shop i teach auto shop oh i got you all right okay so uh you sort of tell them how you know look under the hood and uh what needs to be addressed online sort of a a virtual tour of the uh the the engine exactly Exactly, or I bring the I bring whatever we're going to be working on uh, right to my desk, and then mm. I have one camera, like I said, right on my hand. So when the students come in, they know exactly what to do. Okay, well, I hope so. Upon graduation, I don't want to pull into the Mister Lube and get a virtual oil change. You know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> hey, you guys, behave yourselves, and uh, it's nice to hear from you. Good luck with your schooling you. in your graduate uh, year. Yeah, you. Franco and daughter in Scarborough. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Wednesday, September 30th, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.